We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to put the verses here on the screen. We're going to take just a final little uh, uh, mini message on this idea of generous living. So 2 Corinthians 9.12 goes like this. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Now that last phrase there, uh, thanksgivings to God. Now just a reminder, the church at Corinth, was a growing church and in some regards a healthy church, but in one particular area they were lagging behind and that was in the area of giving. Even though they were an affluent congregation, they were selfish. And Paul's challenging them in this area. He reminds them that by participating in a special offering to help saints over in Jerusalem who were struggling, he said, what you're going to do is going to result in many thanksgivings to God. Now, verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. Now, I've highlighted that little phrase, glorify God. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to glorify God. The ultimate purpose of our lives is to reflect the character of God. We started earlier in the week going back to Genesis chapter 1, the creation passage. And before God created humanity, he said this, and he didn't say this about any other thing that he created. Let us make them in our image and in our likeness. You and I uniquely have the ability to reflect the character of God more clearly than any other of his creations. And in one way that we reflect the character of God, we reflect his generosity when we embrace a generous lifestyle. So we're bringing glory to God by manifesting, by demonstrating the giving heart of God. All right, here's our fifth and final living giving principle. Our giving should reflect the sacrificial nature of the giving heart of God. Our giving should reflect the sacrificial nature of the giving heart of God. As we understand the Lord and we understand that God is the greatest giver, one of the characteristics of God's giving is sacrifice. We see God's sacrifice demonstrated, obviously, in the cross. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. God gave that which was closest and dearest to Him, His one and only Son. This demonstrates, again, the sacrificial nature of God. The true measure of a gift's value is not in the amount, but in the degree of sacrifice. Let that just settle in for a moment. God measures the value of a gift, not by the amount, but rather by the degree of sacrifice. Think about it. Somebody in this room could write a check to this church this morning for $1,000 your pastor would be very happy. That may not necessarily be a sacrificial gift. It might be a generous gift. But it wouldn't necessarily be a sacrificial gift because honestly, you wouldn't miss it. You're in a position financially, you wouldn't miss it. Someone else this morning might write a check of $100 to this church. And that would be a truly sacrificial gift. Single parent, perhaps, struggling on a limited income or a retiree struggling on a fixed income. And that $100, as God measures the value of the gift, in a sense, that $100 is the greater gift. Why? Because there's a greater degree 
of sacrifice. You watch Jesus. What was it that excited the heart of Jesus? Sacrificial giving. We talked the other night about Zacchaeus, you know, the tax collector who embraces the Lord Jesus as his Messiah, is born into God's family, and then spontaneously stands and says, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. Now, that's a pretty generous gift. Half of what I have to the poor. A few days before Jesus' death, resurrection, he was at the house of his good friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Only a short time earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, in a sense, given him back to his family, his sisters, Mary and Martha. And there, as he was enjoying time in their home, these were close friends. You remember the story. Mary exited the room, walked back in with a container of very valuable anointing oil, a perfume-like substance. She opened that, and immediately the house was filled with the fragrance. And in this spontaneous, impulsive act of worship, she poured it out upon the body of the Lord Jesus. Some of the disciples were critical. They estimated the value of that perfume at one year's salary. This could have been sold and used to feed the poor, and Jesus rebuked them and defended her. She in some way understands that I am near my death, and she has anointed my body in anticipation of my coming death. A year's salary in one extravagant gift. During that same week, we call it Passion Week, he's in Jerusalem. He and the disciples are in the temple one day, and they're in the court where the people would bring their financial gifts. This court had these large urns made of metal. And you could hear people walk up and just drop their metal coins in those urns. And so you have this sound of, of, of metal on metal just filling that room. And some were giving very extravagant gifts. And there was actually people standing and watching. And they would give their gift in such a way that they would get a lot of attention. So all of this is going on. And Jesus, it's kind of my imagination, I could see him kind of, elbowing one of the disciples and say, hey, hey, get the other guys, come here. I want them to see this. Watch over there. Look, see that little lady walking up discreetly, not drawing any attention to herself. She's a widow. And immediately they knew her social status was basically the bottom rung because in those days, the widow was among the poorest. And he said, watch. And she walks up to that urn and she puts in Two copper coins valued at less than a penny today by our accounting. And then she turned and just, again, walked quietly and discreetly away. And then he shocked them. You know what he told them. She has just given more than everybody else in that room. Even though there were gifts a hundred times more amount. Because she's given out of her poverty all that she had. Hey, suddenly that 10% is looking pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> 50%, a year's salary, all that you have. See, this is what moves the heart of God when his people begin to embrace sacrificial giving. One of the great givers in the Bible was King David. You know, we often read and quote that David's 
was a man after God's own heart. And I know there's a lot in that statement, but I think one of the reasons God said that about David was because David loved to give. And David practiced as a leader. He practiced and he exemplified sacrificial giving. There was a situation where God made it clear that David was to build the temple on a certain place. And he goes to the owner, and he says, uh, God has revealed to me that I'm, I'm to build the temple here. And immediately, remember, the owner said, well, I will dedicate this. I'll just give this as a gift to you and, and to the kingdom. I'm, I'm honored that you would want my property, and, and I'll just make it a gift. But if you'll recall, the king said, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Isn't that interesting? He says it would be valueless if it doesn't cost me something. So the question is, what are you sacrificing? What are you giving up to invest in kingdom ministry and building up the kingdom of God? A question to ponder, have you ever given something to God that was truly sacrificial in nature? Have you ever made a truly sacrificial gift. I'm not asking if you've given. I'm asking if you've ever given a truly sacrificial gift. Years ago, I was doing a sermon series with my congregation, and the movie The Bucket List had come out. Remember that movie about what do you do before you kick the bucket? Every Christian needs a spiritual bucket list. At least one time in your life, read through the entire Bible in one year. At least one time in your life. At least one time in your life, Share the gospel with a person and watch them pray and give their hearts to Christ. Nothing will energize your life more. At least one time in your life, go on a mission trip. Go on a mission trip. Go someplace. Do something hard in order to share the gospel with someone. And on your bucket list, at least one time in your life, make an extravagant gift. A gift that is sacrificial in nature. Have you ever given a, a gift that was truly sacrificial? And a final question as we wrap up this whole issue of generous living. Does the nature of your giving reflect the giving heart of God? Does the nature of your giving, and I'm not just talking about the giving that you practice here in the church, giving to a brother or sister in Christ. We were in Flint, Michigan several years ago, and before one of the services, a man walked up to me and he gave me an envelope with a name on it. And he said, God has prompted me to help another member of this church who I know is struggling. He's without work right now. And he said, I want it to be an anonymous gift. And he pointed the guy who's across the room and he said, would you mind giving this to that guy? You've probably had those experiences, Pastor. That's, a, that's fun. I get to be the messenger boy. I get to be a blessing, you know, but it's not me. It's not my gift. I'm just presenting it. I'm just the middleman. But the privilege of walking up and saying, hey, somebody in this church who really cares about you but wants to remain anonymous, they asked me to share this with you. And so I'm doing this in Jesus' name. What a blessing that was. Someone, actually two people were blessed that day. One was blessed because he received a gift. Another was blessed because he obeyed the prompting of God to give. Does your giving, whether it's 
to individual members, whether it's to the church, whether it's to a mission fund or other ministries in this community, and looking beyond just your financial gifts, your time, your talents, does your giving reflect the sacrificial nature, the giving heart of God? Years ago, I heard of one of our servicemen, a Marine. He was walking a beat in Baghdad back during the, the occupation. He was standing on a corner. Again, that was kind of his area to, to just watch and survey. And next to him, a uh, uh, Iraqi was setting up a, a, a cart. And on that cart were freshly baked pastries. Oh, it was beautiful. You know, the smell, wonderful that time of day there in the morning. And Serviceman, that Marine was just kind of watching. A little boy walked up, and immediately he could tell he was not living well. His clothes were basically rags. He was barefoot. His little legs and arms a little more thin than they should have been. And he just stopped a few feet away from that cart, again, just loaded down with those fresh-baked pastries, and he just kind of sat there and looked. could see him salivating in his mouth and just longing and wishing to have something like that. That tough old Marine, his, his heart was moved, and he walked over and he purchased a bag of pastries, pastries there from that baker. And then he walked over and he put it in the hand of that boy and said, this is for you. This is for you. And he turned to walk away and he felt a tug, you know, in his flak jacket, and he turned and that little boy looked at him and he said, Mr., are you God? See, we're never more like Christ than when we're giving sacrificially. Take your workbook, turn with me to page 18 in your workbook, and then open your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to jump into verse 20 in just a moment. So your workbook, page 18, the transformed life, and then your Bible, the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 4. All right, now while you're getting settled in there, let's start with our workbook. Our revival truth this morning goes like this. The revived life is evidenced by a commitment to God's ongoing work of sanctification. Oh, Greg, you're throwing those big words at me this morning. All right, you've got to put your thinking cap on this morning. I know it's not the first time you've heard it. Your pastor has talked about it. Your Sunday school Bible study leaders have talked about it. What do we mean by this word of sanctification? Number one, God's great purpose for you is to become like Christ. God's great purpose for you is to become like Christ. We began Sunday night with a message on holiness. Remember Isaiah 6, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And, and Isaiah has that encounter with the Lord, and he walks away with this new understanding of the holiness of God and the call upon his life to be holy as well. All right, the word sanctify or sanctification is related to the word holy. So the word sanctification simply means to be made more holy, to be made more holy, to be more set apart to God. The idea of sanctified is to be set apart. I'm being set apart from the person I was in the past, lost and far from God and controlled by 
destructive attitudes and actions. I'm set apart from that. I'm set apart to a relationship with God, fellowship with God, intimacy with God, serving God, displaying Christ-like character in my life. So this is the whole idea of sanctification, that I become more like Christ. A verse of Scripture that I know you're familiar with, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now pause. Typically when we quote that verse, we only quote verse 28. We don't quote verse 29. And we do verse 28 a disservice. Often I hear verse 28 quoted something like this. Well, just, just sit back. Something good's going to come out of this. I know it's hard now. I know it's bad now. But something good's going to come out of it. I don't know when, or, but just something good. That's really not what that verse is teaching. I've watched too many people, church members, walk through crises, and I didn't see anything good come out of it. They got angry and bitter and far from God. I've watched crises destroy marriages and families. So that verse is not saying that God will automatically bring something good out of every crisis. So what's it saying? Well, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is committed to using anything and everything that touches your life for your utmost good. And what is your utmost good? It will make you more like Christ. It will make you more like Christ. God says, I, I, I've got my hands around you. And there's nothing that will touch you that's not filtered through my hands of love and grace. And my intent is to use anything and everything that touches you to make you more like the Lord Jesus. If you could see God's to-do list for Greg Simmons, I don't know that he has one, but if he did, if you could see God's to-do list, at the top of God's to-do list, make Greg more like Christ. This is the priority of God for you here and now. This is the ongoing work of God for you. Often folks come and they say, Greg, uh, what is God's will for my life? I can always say, well, God's will for your life is that you become more like Christ. Oh, I know that, but who do I marry and where do I work and what's my occupation? Here's the thing. If you and I will focus on what we know to be the will of God, the unknown will come. God will fill in the blanks, all right? When you're true to the light that you have, then God brings more light. So the question is, are you cooperating with God in this great work of becoming more like the Lord Jesus. There was a master sculptor who had just taken ownership of, of a massive block granite. And from that, he was going to sculpt something. He had an assistant, and the assistant was rather new. So the assistant's just looking at that massive block of stone. He says, what are you going to do with this? And he thought for a moment, and he said, I see a horse in there. I, I see a horse in full gallop. That's what's going to come from this. And the assistant said, that's amazing. How in the world are you going to turn this into a horse? He said, it's easy. I'm going to just knock off everything that doesn't look like a horse. Now, what is God's commitment to you? It's to knock off of you and me everything that doesn't look like the Lord Jesus. This is God's ongoing work in your life. A second observation regarding sanctification, God's work of sanctification is an ongoing process. 
It's a process. We tend to think of salvation from only one perspective or one tense, past tense. God has saved me. Typically, that's how we use the word. God saved me, and certainly that's a biblical use of the word. God saved me from my sin. God saved me from eternal separation. God saved me from lostness. Past tense. But it's interesting, the word is also used in the Scripture in the present tense. In other words, God is saving me. God is saving me, not just from the penalty of sin, past tense, but God is also saving me from the power of sin. He's breaking the grip of sin upon my life. And by the way, there's a future tense of salvation. God will save me someday. I'm going to shed this old body, and I have a brand new glorified body like that of the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus, and God's going to look at me one day, and God's going to say, done, finished. You're like my son now, and able to perfectly reflect his character. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I'm being saved from the power of sin. One day I will be saved from the very presence of sin. See, salvation is three tenses. So we're talking about the middle tense, the present tense. Salvation in the sense of our sanctification is an ongoing process, a a scripture that communicates that well. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformed, transformed. This is a word that's only used a couple of times in the Bible. The first time that it's used is in the context of Jesus' transfiguration. Remember the story? He takes a couple of his disciples up on a mountain. They're watching, and as they watch, it's as if God pulls apart his flesh and allows them to see his pristine divine nature. His face began to shine like the sun. Even his clothing were shining brightly. We call it the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, here's the amazing thing. That same word is being used of you and I, not in the sense of being transformed on the outside, but more it's the inward work of God. God is transfiguring us. God is transforming us. The uh, English equivalent is the word metamorphosis. Let me take you back to seventh grade biology. Remember the tadpole? becomes a frog, the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, on what basis? The process of metamorphosis. God is in the process of a metamorphosis in your life, a transforming work in your life that you might become more like Christ. And then the phrase, one degree of glory to another. Here's a question, just just to answer to yourself, of course. Are you more like Jesus now than you were this time last year? Are you more like Jesus now than this time last year? I mean, are there identifiable differences? More patient, more kind, more loving, more giving? Are you more like Christ today than you were a year ago? If not, a question whether you are in the will of God in the sense that you are committed to God's ongoing work of sanctification. I'm going to show you a scary guy here. This is Brian Widner. 
Now, as a young man, Brian Widner, growing up in the Midwest, got involved with the skinhead philosophy. These are very violent gangs, and they're committed to quote-unquote racial purity by prejudice against other races, the whole white supremacist thing. Uh, This guy, I mean, he went head over heels into this philosophy. He actually was the founder of a skinhead gang called the Vinlanders. Friends called him the pit bull of skinheads. This guy was the most violent and committed to this philosophy. Well, as he became more immersed in the philosophy, he began to have tattoos on his body. Tattoos, again, that included symbols of this philosophy, blood-soaked razors, uh, swastikas, uh, the letters hate stamped across his knuckles. Then an amazing thing happened. God began to soften his heart. He became a committed follower of Christ, found a young lady who was also immersed in that philosophy and she, her heart was changing as well, and she saw beyond his rough exterior, and they married, and they left this whole lifestyle, and, uh, numerous death threats against them. They had a little girl, but he was struggling. Uh, imagine, you know, walking in for a job interview <laughs> looking like this, and he became increasingly desperate. He said that the final straw that broke the camel's back was with my my little girl was growing old enough now to become afraid of me because of these violent tattoos that covered his body. He went to a dermatologist and there were procedures obviously to remove these tattoos. The estimate would be about $35,000 and there was no way that he could afford anything like that. He began to look online. He found that there were homemade recipes basically involving mild acids. He said, I was ready to douse my face in acid in order to try to get rid of these violent tattoos. Someone took an interest, a very generous person, agreed to underwrite the cost of the surgeries. The uh, dermatologist brought him in the first time and explained to him there would be about 25 surgeries over the course of 16 months on his face, his arms, and his hands. He took the back of his hand, and you know they use a laser for this, and shot it there, and it was very painful. I mean, he reacted. And he said, now, this is going to be incredibly painful for you. Imagine this being multiplied thousands and thousands of times. It will be far more painful than the original tattoos were. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm committed, whatever it takes. So he begins this process of transformation, and you can see his progress over the course of those many months. Now, by the time it got to the end, they were having to put him completely under because he was unable to bear the pain of the process. Today, he and his wife committed Christians, healthy home life, and God continues to use him to help others to escape that lifestyle. This is a picture of the transforming work of God. And by the way, this is one reason that I and our team do what we do. First, it's to please the Lord, but our second motivation is knowing that God is using us as part of that transformation in children, in youth, in marriages, 
and in individual lives. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Let's get to our text. Let me start reading at verse 20. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, now pause a moment. Paul had been the founding pastor there of the church in Ephesus, had been there to personally lead many of them to saving faith in Christ. These people were coming out of lifestyles that were extremely dark. These folks had been immersed in all kinds of idolatry and paganism, incredibly promiscuous and immoral. I mean, this was a very dark place, the ancient city of, Exodus, of, of, of Ephesus. And Paul marches in with nothing more than the gospel of Christ. But again, there's power in that gospel, and lives are being changed. And after a period of time, he's prompted to move on to start other churches. But he's writing back to encourage them to continue in this process of life transformation. Now, he begins by reminding them, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus. He said, I brought you the truth. You didn't have the truth before I came. Now you have God's truth. And that truth becomes part of a process of transformation. Now, he describes this process in three steps. Not everything conveniently conforms to a three-step process, but in this case, it does. So step number one, you see this in your outline, is uh, put off. Put off. Verse 22, put off your old self. Now, what does that look like for us? Identify and repent of sinful attitudes and actions. Identify and repent of sinful attitudes and actions. Putting off is taking ownership of individual sins. We've been talking about that this week. We like to uh, deal with sin on a wholesale basis. Oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. I know I've got sin in my life. God wants us to learn to deal with sin on a retail basis, all right? We need to deal with sins like we commit sins one at a time. So I'm taking ownership of specific sins in my life. Repent. We talked about that beginning last Sunday morning. Repent, I'm going this way. I stop. I do the about face. And now I'm going this way. It's a change of mind that results in a change of lifestyle. Hear me, church. If nothing changes, nothing changes. In other words, these next 24 hours are mission critical for you. If you don't change anything in the next 24 hours, the way that you treat your spouse, the way that you respond to your children, your commitment to spending time with God. The next 24 hours are really mission critical. If you make no changes in your life, in your routine, then, well, you've had a great meeting these eight days. You've enjoyed good music, heard a few corny jokes, but there's nothing that's going to be lasting as far as transformation. If nothing changes, nothing changes. Exploring this idea of repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, 
whereas worldly grief produces death. So we have two kinds of grief, godly grief, worldly grief. Let's start with worldly grief. Worldly grief is basically I'm grieving because I've got, I got caught, right? That, that's worldly grief. I'm grieving because I got caught. I'm grieving because of the painful consequences of my sinful choices. In other words, my grief is very selfish and self-centered. I got caught. I got embarrassed. I am suffering the consequences of my sinful choices. That's a worldly grief. Worldly grief does not fuel lasting change. We had a little dog that traveled with us for a while. Name was Zuzu. Now, Zuzu had a very loving side, but you know animals have, have quirks too. And one of Zuzu's quirks, for some reason, she loved to tear up Kleenexes. That just, for some reason, that was her fun, you know? And, and so when we would leave the trailer, we'd try to remember to put the Kleenex boxes up and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you'd forget I'd come back. Again, she was a very loving animal, so she'd be jumping up on you and so happy to see you. And then Patty could do it the best. She would look over and see that little crumpled, torn up pile of Kleenex, and she would say, oh, Zuzu, what did you do? Oh, her little face would drop, her ears would drop, you know, and oh, Zuzu, what did you, and she'd go over and put, what did you do? Oh, she looked like the saddest, most sorry, repentant dog you've ever seen. She wasn't, because she'd do it again if she had the chance. She, she, she was suffering because she got caught and reprimanded. Now, that is worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that says, I'm sad, I'm grieved because I've grieved the heart of God. And there's a whole difference in the response. God, I've hurt the testimony of Christ. God, I've grieved your heart. Godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation, initial salvation or that ongoing work of salvation. Big difference between the two. Second step in the transformation process, you see this on your outline, is to be renewed. Be renewed. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now that word renew literally means to make new. Renewed, to make new. It's the idea of change. Allow God's Word to change your thinking. Allow God's Word to change your thinking. So I begin by putting off, I identify again, these specific sin habits, attitudes, and actions. I'm taking ownership. I'm turning. I'm repenting. And now, and there's, again, three steps, and every step is mission critical if you want lasting change. The second step, again, is i got to change my thinking. Years ago, a Texan by the name of Zig Ziglar, motivational speaker, you may have heard of him, committed Christian, coined an interesting little phrase. He said, too many people are afflicted with stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. Now, what does he mean by that? We've grown up in a world that's hostile to God and the things of God. We've grown up in a world that's saturated with lies, falsehoods, and deception. And we start buying into that. 
And we allow those lies to take hold of us and those lies begin to shape us. And until we begin to think differently, there's really not going to be lasting change. See, your mind is the battlefield. Who wins is who controls your thinking. Remember going to the circus? We pastored in small communities for years and the circus would come to town, big deals. Everybody would go to the circus, and there's the tents. And outside the tent, there are the elephants. See the big chain around their leg and connected to a stake in the ground. Now, what's interesting, that stake in the ground probably goes down about 18 inches. If that elephant really wanted to, one good yank, and he'd be free. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because when that elephant was just a baby... And they put that chain on its leg and they connected it to that stake in the ground. That elephant yanked and yanked and yanked. Because of its age, it didn't have the power to pull the stake out. So at some point, that elephant learns, chain on the leg, chain connected to the stake in the ground, I'm not going anywhere. So that elephant is held captive, not literally by the stake in the ground, but by its mind. There are people in this room who are being held captive because wrong thinking. Again, you continue to buy the lie of the enemy. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's our word transformed again. Here we see transformation linked directly to the renewing of the mind. Now you've heard uh, that First part of the verse, paraphrased before. Don't allow the world to press you into its mold. That's what it wants to do. Talk about intolerant. It's the unbelieving that are intolerant. And they don't want us to represent the Lord Jesus. And so there's this constant pressure to conform to them in their lostness and sinfulness. But we're transformed by the renewing of the mind. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, this is important. God's word is the transforming agent. God's word is the change agent. It's important that you understand that. That's why Paul began this conversation reminding them they have the truth that is in Christ. And it is that truth that brings transformation. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you what? Free. That's exactly right. But look where God's Word has to be, in my heart. It's got to be part of me. I've got to be constantly thinking and processing the Word of God. Not just in the hand, but in the heart. James 1, 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly accepted the Word planted in you, which can save you. So in the process of getting rid of the bad stuff, notice I have to implant the good stuff. The word planted in you. The idea is literally to have that word to be made part of you, to be grafted into you. Some of you maybe have uh, played around with the trees in your yard and you take one tree and you graft it into another tree and together they become a hybrid tree. Again, God's Word has to be inside of me. It's got to be part of me. This is 
critical for the transformation process. So I commend you this morning for being in Sunday school and in the next hour for being in church. And some of you will go home this week and you'll spend time each day in God's Word. And I commend that. But at the same time, that Word's got to become part of you. You must embrace God's Word continually. Keep it continually in front of you. Parents, this is one of the keys, I believe, to our children embracing our faith. We created what I call a word atmosphere in our home. We tried to be as creative as we could to keep God's word in front of our children. So the videos that they watched and the, the things they listened to and what we'd let them listen to at bed at night and the books that we'd read them, we tried as much as we could to continue to keep God's word in front of them, trusting that it was going to connect, become rooted into them, and then eventually bear fruit. How many of you have ever downloaded software on a computer and then had to click a little box that says, I agree with what I just downloaded? How many of you ever done something like that before? Okay, so you know we're on the same page here, all right? You download, you're needing to download some kind of program or update, and you see that little box, I accept the terms and the license agreement. Now, the assumption is I've read the terms, right? That's the assumption. Before I click the box, the assumption is I've read the terms. I'm not going to embarrass by asking how many have read the terms. I've never read the terms. Confession, okay? I've never read the terms. I, there's no telling what I've signed off on through the years, you know? Probably Bill Gates is going to show up on my doorstep one day and want my firstborn child, you know? You signed off? Well, gosh, I didn't realize. Now watch Here's the point. Somebody walks in, holds that book up. How many of you believe in the inerrant and the inspired and the infallible Word of God? And everybody says, amen. But look where it is. It's out there. It's out there. And I believe all those things, by the way. It's got to be in here. If you want to change, if you really want to change, it's got to be in here. You're struggling in a particular area, anger, lust. Let me give you a homework assignment. Just go home, Google, anger, Bible verses. Lust, Bible verses. It'll take you to websites that'll list dozens and dozens of verses. If you've got a printer, print them off, or just write them out by hand. And start putting those things in places where you see them. Put them by your mirror in the bathroom. Put them in the car when you've got a few moments at the stoplight waiting to move on in traffic. Keep God's Word in front of you. Target specific sin areas with specific Bible promises. Transformation. All right? We're in the home stretch now. We're to put off, we're to identify specific sins. Repenting. We're to Renew our minds. We're to constantly allow God's Word to bring about that change. And finally, we're to put on. Put on. Verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that look like? Replace sinful habits with Christ-like thoughts and behaviors. Now, people will come forward Make a decision, 
rededicate their lives. There's a, a, a true sense of remorse there. There's a desire to change. But remember what I said, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And some will take it a step farther, and they'll actually commit. I'm going to start spending time in God's Word. I'm going to cultivate a quiet time and, and be with God. And they'll start spending more time in God's Word. But this third step, uh, this is where we decide, am I going to fish or cut bait? I don't know if they say that around here. That's a good Texas phrase. Am I going to really persevere and allow God to begin to change me? And it's going to come on this principle of replacement. This is God's process. He wants to replace. And until the replacement has become a consistent part of the change, you're going to continue to struggle in that particular area. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 43, let me just, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Jesus tells a story. It's a pretty wild story, all right? Matthew 12, 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now pause just a moment. The unclean spirit, he's talking here about a person who is now under some kind of demonic influence. And somehow that person has been delivered from that. So the unclean spirit goes out and starts looking for a new place to hang out, right? Can't find any place. And he thinks, I, I think I'll go check out the old neighborhood. He calls the man his house. And he comes back and he finds the house clean, swept, but here's the key, empty. Empty. In other words, even though there's been a, a deliverance, there's been no replacement. The spirit of God is still not there. So listen to verse 45. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now I'm going to be honest, there's some theology in there I don't quite understand, okay? But I think I understand the principle. Because there was nothing to replace, there's that spiritual vacuum. And because it was not replaced, this demonic spirit goes, find, uh, goes to find seven other demon buddies more wicked than itself, and they all move in. And Jesus said the, the latter state of the man is worse than the first. See, the power of replacement. I want you to see how incredibly practical God's Word is. Look at verse 25 with me. Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now he's just given them the principle, the, the principle of, of replacement, put off, be renewed, put on, the principle of replacement. Now here's illustration number one, put away falsehood and in its place speak the truth. In other words, stop lying, put off lying, put on honesty. See the principle there? Put off lying, put on honesty. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, uh, I know there's people out there who have a problem with dishonesty. That's not my issue. It's interesting, we can be rather creative at times in our dishonesty. Shane warned, uh, warned us the other night about uh, exaggeration, words like always and never, that are actually subtle forms of being dishonest. When you're pouting around the house and your spouse says, is there something wrong? And you say, 
No. That's dishonesty. Putting off lying, put on honesty. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. I'm to put off anger. I'm to put on self-control. Now, I'm thankful the Scripture didn't, uh, it didn't say that it's a sin to be angry. It says be angry, but do not sin. Anger is an emotion. We have little control over our emotions, and so so many things can, can trigger anger. Here's the warning. When you're angry, you are more vulnerable to sin. Be angry and do not sin. I know your pastor's done a lot of marital counseling over the years. I imagine he would agree with me. I've probably seen anger do more to destroy intimacy in marriage than just about any other emotion. I've been doing this for 30 years. Hundreds and hundreds of couples. Lots of issues. But the one that I see over and again is the issue of anger. Because when we're angry, we say things that we would not normally say. We do things we would not normally do. We take a tone or a volume with our voice. Some of you right now are squelching your children because you are disciplining in anger. You say, I don't get it. I'm disciplining. I'm doing it consistently. And... But you're disciplining in anger. I'll tell you a little secret. You're ugly when you're angry. And so you've terrified them. But you've not helped them cultivate the fear of God. And by your appearance, and by the tone of your voice, you're nullifying the lessons you're trying to teach. You know, when you're driving down the road and on the dashboard, those little lights start coming on. Someone called them idiot lights because by the time they've come on, it's probably too late. You know what I'm saying? Those warning lights. Everybody has anger signs. And maybe for you, it's your heart beating a little faster. Or maybe you talk a little, a little quicker and a little louder. You need to understand your anger signs. Ding, 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 ding. That's warning you. Just shut her down for a while. Be angry and do not sin. Instead of anger, self-control. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. His third illustration Stop stealing and start giving. Stop stealing. All right, Greg, I have many things, but this one I'm okay with, all right? I, I'm not a thief. Well, let's just think about that a moment. There are probably people in this room that are stealing time from your employer, cruising online, smartphone during the day, stealing time from your employer. Here we are, tax time again. Not my favorite time of the year by any stretch. But at the same time, if I'm going to honor God, I'm to honor those whom he has placed in authority over me. Are all of those deductions that you're turning in, and believe me, I don't want to give any, a penny more than I have to give because I don't agree with so much of, of how it's used, but are those deductions, are they accurate? Are they true? Well, IRS may never know. God knows. 
There are people in this room this morning that have the audacity to steal from God. You're not giving biblically. First fruits that we've talked about, giving to God first, his portion, his due. Now, it's not enough just to stop stealing, but rather let him work all the harder that he or she might give to others. See, replacement. You haven't come full circle until now you are practicing generosity. This is the key to lasting transformation. And then the last one, verse 29, or at least the last one we have this morning. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Stop criticizing and start encouraging. My translation uses the phrase corrupting talk. The word corrupt describes something that is putrid, dead, and decaying. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I'm either speaking death into people and death into relationships, or I'm speaking life into people. I'm speaking life into relationships. A critical spirit. I know, ladies, that the Scripture picks on you in Proverbs 21, 9. Better to live on a roof than in a house with a quarrelsome wife. That door can swing both directions. But here's the point. When you and I give our mouths over to criticism, we drive people away from us. Oh, I know how well-intentioned you are to help your husband be more Christ-like, to help him do better in his responsibilities, but I'm telling you, you are usurping the unique work of the Holy Spirit. He does a lot better job at convicting than you do. Though well-intentioned, you're driving him from you. You're driving your teenager from you. Yes, discipline, no question about it. Just make sure that there are more words of praise and encouragement than there are words of correction. Have to correct, no question. But just make sure that you've added ample amounts of encouragement. Oh, I love you. I'm so proud to be your dad. I'm so thankful for you. I know at times you've got to work real hard to find things to be encouraging about with teens. I've been there, raised three, okay? But look hard, it's worth it. It's worth it. Look on page 24 of your workbook. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Up in the left-hand corner, put off, put on. One of our staff members with a lot of time on his or her hands put together dozens of put off, put on applications. You see it in the left-hand corner there, put off judging. Instead, cultivate an attitude that says, God, search my heart. Put off bitterness and instead put on tenderhearted and forgiving. Put off unforgiveness, put on forgiveness, put off selfishness, put off self-denial. And look what we've done. Conveniently, we've given you scripture for each one of those. Put off, identify, take ownership, repent. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's the transforming power of God's word. Put on, replacement so that you can move forward. Now, here's my challenge for you tomorrow morning or sometime during the day when you're going to spend time with God. I'd take about 10 at a time. That, we don't want to overwhelm 
you, all right? Take about 10 at a time and just walk through. Do I consistently find myself on the left or on the right side of the page? And as God speaks, target those particular areas. Begin to ask God to do a, a work, an ongoing work in your life.